0: Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It certainly is good to be back on the air. And I know most of you are beginning to wonder, when was Kirk ever going to come back on? Well, I've said it before, I'd say it again, there must be balance in life. In other words, life doesn't always revolve around one thing. Yes, I do enjoy podcasting, but I also know that it's good to take a break from it when necessary, because other things do come up and... There also needs to be time to uh, do research as to where the next uh, book topic will take us, and by making sure that that research gets done, that I know for a fact that one, I can uh, take on the next assignment, and two, that all of you, my fellow uh, listeners, will uh, come away knowing that you learned something that perhaps you didn't even know about uh, beforehand. So. Uh, Time itself does make all the difference, uh, not just with uh, researching for what lies ahead, but also uh, in getting other um, relevant stuff uh, taken care of uh, that is part of uh, daily life uh, rituals. So I'm sure many of you are probably beginning to wonder uh, where exactly are we going to go next with our um, podcast uh, book topic series. Well, I will tell you this, uh, that we are going to... um, go into the year 1781, and I know most of you who have been with me for some time um, already know that we probably have already um, been into the year 1781 through our time machine. However, our time machine is going to take us back into 1781, and of course when we do think of 1781, uh, the most uh, prevalent thing that comes to my mind is that um, there is still a war going on, in other words, a war for separation. How about a war for independence, the American Revolution? And I'm sure most of you are wondering, what is there to talk about that has not been discussed before pertaining to the American Revolutionary War? Well, I should point out that, um, that the American Revolutionary War is full of um, unique twists and turns. It's full of unsung heroes, you know, everyday average Joes who performed acts of bravery, whom uh, went above and beyond the occasion to uh, risk their own lives so that uh, their fellow um, neighbors or their fellow uh, comrades could live in freedom, and not just those in the present, but perhaps for future generations. So I'm sure many of you also are wondering, Are we going to be talking about a particular battle, or are we talking about a particular person whose heroic um, actions need to be addressed? Well, I could tell you this much, that we will be talking about a battle, but ironically um, it's about a battle that most of you probably have not not even heard of. I didn't know anything about this battle until I read uh, the book, which which I read uh, a, a while back, but I had heard about this battle before reading the book, but I um, researched online to see if anything had been written about it. And what do you know? There had been a book that had been written uh, in recent years regarding this uh, battle. So I think it's time for us to go ahead and um, start with our uh, prologue being our introduction. And I am going to do things a little bit differently. And the reason I say different is because I know in times past, I may not have uh, mentioned um, the full answer of our um, new book topic uh, series discussion until the end. However, halfway through this uh, prologue, um, the name of the battle will be revealed. So that's my way of doing things a little different, uh, this go-around, but it's worth a while. So uh, let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to listen in to uh, the prologue of our next book. Uh, podcast uh, book topic series discussion. 1781 is often associated as the year in which British forces under General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to General George Washington and his Continental Army at Yorktown, Virginia, on October 19th. While Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown was significant, the Revolutionary War still carried on, without any definitive end in sight. In other words, definitive meaning that uh, there was no uh, exact um, end at a particular moment of when all hostilities would, um, would cease to end. 1781 marked a decisive time in America's conflict, especially considering she had entered into year six, fighting against the world's most formidable military force, England, the mother country to America's 13 colonies. Prior to the siege of Yorktown, Virginia taking root, Patriot and British armies squared off against each other throughout the Carolinas. But for the Americans, their mission centered upon keeping the British confined directly south of Virginia. While Patriot forces endured setbacks, they also overcame them through the use of implementing tactics which were non-conventional, given just before 1781, year six, American troop morale and public support reached another round of uncertainty and what appeared to be a never-ending struggle behind attaining the ultimate prized objective. And what was that ultimate prized objective, folks? Independence. Now, yes, uh, you know, 1776, or leading up to July 4th, 1776, you know, we do have to keep in mind that um, that there are uh, those in the Con- in the Continental Congress whom uh, went above and beyond to oversee the realization or the potential for re- for uh, reconciliation. You know, you have men like Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, believe it or not, even Thomas Jefferson, yes, the author of the Declaration of Independence. He was hoping that perhaps England would come to its senses and extend its own version of an olive branch tree to where, you know, compromises could be made on both sides where past grievances would be finally forgiven and that uh, the colonists would be uh, valued as um, equal subjects under um, under the rule of the crown. Well, unfortunately, that uh, did not happen, so as time uh, progressed to where we got closer to July 4th of 1776 and this Olive Branch petition has failed, many felt that there would be no means of being able to go back to what it was. So, in the weeks before July 4th of 1776, there's a change in heart with many of the delegates there, and of course that's when Jefferson starts to write the document lists all the grievances and reasons behind why separation needs to happen. So it's one thing to have written out a Declaration of Independence stating all the reasons behind why there must be separation from the mother country. However, a document alone does not have the same meaning if you are not able to defeat your opponent on the battlefield. And we're not just talking, you know, one or two battles. But as time has gone along now into year six, there still is hope that defeating the British once and for all can be done. But for every victory that the American army has attained, there seems to be a setback. It's like Thomas Paine's um, um, famous saying, these are the times that try men's souls. I believe it's fair to say that there was more than one occasion... During the American Revol- Revolutionary War, where that phrase would have come into play, uh, I, for me, that when that phrase comes about, to me, that's when um, when the American Army um, suffers its um, suffers its first crushing blow via the York via the New York campaign, where Washington and his men were forced to retreat south to New Jersey. And Thomas Paine's um, famous phrase, these are the times that try men's souls, came into play. But while, yes, those times did try men's souls, they were able to, um, to pull off the improbable with the help of intelligence and with the help of a, with a, a game plan, the Battle of Trenton, sailing across the Delaware River, surprising the Hessians. So that was just another example of where the ultimate objective in independence in terms of keeping the flames alive uh, came about, but it's also an example of where, yes, it's one thing to attain independence, but it's just not going to be given to you. For the uh, Americans, the only way that independence is going to be able to be attained is by defeating the British, the mother country, on the battlefield. So, yes, 1781, year six, American troop morale, or given just before 1781, late 1780, going into the start of 1781, American troop morale and public support has reached another round of uncertainty in what appears to be this never-ending struggle behind attaining the ultimate objective in independence. For those of you whom are ardent American Revolutionary War history buffs, The most well-known battles fought during the Southern Campaign leading up to Yorktown range from the Siege of Charleston, Waxhaws, Camden, Cowpens, 96, Blackstock's Plantation, Guilford Courthouse, King's Mountain. All of those are very, very um, famous battles that were fought in the South. It should be fair to point out that on the flip side, we've been prone to forgetting about lesser-known battles. Lesser-known battles from the northern uh, colonies, or the northern campaign, to the, middle camp- to the middle colonies, as well as to the southern campaign. It is fair to say that we have been prone to forgetting about lesser-known battles. That's why, for this podcast book topic, I felt it was important to uh, talk about a battle that has not been told in textbooks, that has not gotten a lot of recognition until recent years. What if I told all of you, my fellow loyal 101 History Podcast listeners, that the last battle fought in the American Revolutionary War's southern campaign wasn't Yorktown? I know most, if not everyone, listening would find this to be a bit odd and yet surprising. I thought it was too at first. I, I was convinced, for a long time, uh, for years, that Yorktown was the last um, battle fought in the American Revolutionary War Southern Campaign. But hey, no matter how old you are, uh, you're always um, bound to learn something new. And some, and a lot of times, that's never a bad thing. Our next book, our next podcast bu- book topic study, will focus upon South Carolina. But in terms of battle engagement within the Palmetto State, because that's what South Carolina is referred to as the Palmetto State, we are shifting gears into that state's interior country, where the destination target comes at a site known as Utah Springs. Now, of course, when we hear the word Utah, of course, we think of the state Utah, spelled U-T-A-H. Well, I'm going to um, let you all uh, know something here that uh, Utah Springs, South Carolina, what is now today referred to as Utahville, is spelled, it's spelled out as the following. Utah in South Carolina is not U-T-A-H. It is E-U-T-A-W. And then, of course, you have Utahville. So I just found, I find that interesting, and I think that's something that all of us should keep in mind. Although South Carolina as an entire colony during the War for Independence saw more battles, skirmishes, and internal conflicts with neighbors, resulting in widespread violence, the battle at Utah Springs wasn't any different. But unfortunately, what took place on September eighth, 1781, became overlooked by hostilities taking place well north at Yorktown, Virginia. It's one thing for a battle to occur, but but there must be a purpose besides defeating your opponent. In South Carolina, 1781, there still remained a presence of American and British commanders with their units ready for skirmishing to open field combat, or let alone, I should say, fighting. So Utah Springs is north of Charleston. If we um if any of us know where Charleston is on the map, we know that it's uh it can be found along the state's low country terrain right along the um, along the ocean, right along um really in a sense right along the heart of the Atlantic Ocean. Whereas Charleston, yes, can be found along the state's low country terrain, Utah Springs is right in the heart of interior country, meaning that it's uh inland, further inland, at least maybe 80 or 100 miles west of, uh, of the Low Country. Whichever uh, side controlled the state's interior meant having uh, entire access to rivers running north and south. And I mention this because uh, it's easy to assume that, that uh, when we spot where a, ri- a river is located in a state, it's easy to think that it's only located to just that one state alone we should be uh, reminded of the fact that rivers in North and South Carolina do uh, flow into one another's opposite states. Um, and it's just not in North and South Carolina, for example, it could be the case in, in many other states in America. But in this case, um, whichever side did control the state's interior meant having entire access to the rivers running North and South, meaning that supplies could run could be uh, sent uh, via the river uh, as well as um, getting across the river by a ferry and even by means of uh, cavalry having to wade through uh, the waters to get from point A to point B. And besides having access to the rivers running north and south, how about just momentum in general, momentum that would um, change the, the Southern Campaign's course, given that the war itself was still a ways off from coming to a final end. So whoever, you know, whoever were to win at uh, Utah Springs, yes, would not only have control of the state's interior, um, of the, of the state's interior country, but just knowing that that side could have all sorts of accesses to the rivers that run north and south, and just momentum in general, because remember, just because of what takes place at Yorktown, and yes, as we all know, Cornwallis surrendered, it doesn't mean that the uh, war is completely over. It doesn't mean that a slam-dunk victory has taken place to where all hostilities come to an end. Now, the battle at Utah Springs was incredibly tense, and just knowing that it got overlooked by well-famous American victories at Calpens in in Kings Mountain is a travesty. Whereas most fighting in the Carolinas' campaign revolved around irregular, or rather I should say guerrilla-style combat, Utah Springs, folks, believe it or not, was the exact opposite. Open-field traditional warfare, or what I referred to as linear fighting. Soldiers forming together in straight lines, not far apart from the opposing side, which often gave way to deadly volleys and bayonet charges. Now what truly makes Utah Springs battle worth sharing, besides the fact it became the final piece to the American Revolution's southern campaign, in other words, what truly makes this battle worth sharing besides the fact that it, that it would become the final piece to the Southern Campaign. Well, for starters, this battle lasted more than one hour, which was something very unknown to have happened at the time. You know, it's easy to think that sometimes, well, you know, yes, a battle might just last an hour, but it just so happens, folks, that this one lasted more than an hour. At some point in this uh, podcast book topic series, I will um, I will um, share with you all just exactly how many hours total it took for this fight, or r- rather I should say for this battle, to have fully ended. Because, I'll, I mean, it obviously lasted more than one hour, so it's fair to say that, um, that for all we know, it could possibly have taken two or three hours at most, but the bottom line is that uh, what takes place at Utah Springs is much different uh, compared to um, famous battles like Camden, Kings Mountain, and Cowpens, which lasted up to an hour or less. A second uh, component worth exploring in this book topic series will pertain to command and control of one's unit, considering the primary element into achieving battle victory revolved around maintaining troop morale and united front you know throughout this um, war for independence troop morale has seen its shares of highs and lows but somehow through through the darkest of times we have somehow managed to keep the flames alive we've lost some battles that we weren't that that we probably should have won but yet luck just was not on our side there could have been poor strategical planning but how ironic at the same time that we have won some that we have won battles that we weren't supposed to win and there again those battles that the americans won that we perhaps we weren't supposed to have won we we did things differently we did things a little unconventional you know, when I think of unconventional, a lot of times I think of uh, what took place in the Southern Campaign. But, I, but another good example that I can um, attest to that would be outside of the Southern Campaign happened at Trenton. Um, you know, this was a make-or-break moment for the Continental Army. Um, the European Standard Protocol was that during the wintertime, you did not fight your troops rested until spring came well george washington did not have that luxury he's probably got fewer than oh maybe close to 2000 men desertions are rampant um people i mean soldiers are are quitting they don't see they don't see what the real value in fighting is no more i mean the british army has driven them completely out of new york they have been um They've been on the run. They have um, been constantly having to escape to higher ground just to live for another day of fighting. Luckily, a spy who, um, who was a double agent, not only for the British, but would become a spy for the Americans, gave George Washington and his commanders right below him the tools they needed to pull off one of the most incredible feats he basically told them where the hessian post was in trenton and that the hessians were in a, were not um doing things as they were told to in other words the hessians had been told to better fortify their post they were told to um they were told to do x y and z differently by the british the hessians were the mercenaries whom fought under um whom served as a backup um as backup forces to the British, given their um, given the uh, royalty uh, connection between uh, King George III and his wife of uh, Queen Charlotte uh, from Mecklenburg, Germany. But to put it all in a nutshell, John Honeyman, who would be the spy, basically told Washington what he needed to do, and that he needed to do this quickly. the me- the, the The mission itself was. Victory or death. In other words, if we don't try this mission, then the cause for independence is over. If we do try, yes, there may not be a guarantee, but at least we didn't leave anything on the table to chance. Well, Washington and his men went all out and did the improbable, and they did something unconventional. Not only did uh, that did, if I could speak, that'd be great. But not only did the, their uh, forces cross the uh, river, the Delaware River. They made it across. Not everybody did make it across because of the weather, but enough men made it across to where they were able to march the ten miles that was required to get to the um, Hessian post in Trenton. Colonel Johann Rall had been repeat had been warned repeatedly. By John Honeyman, he basically sent. He basically advised Honeyman. I mean, Honeyman basically advised Rawl that look. The Americans are gonna th- are gonna launch an attack. Colonel Johann Rawl laughed. He scoffed at it. He's like, oh, those Americans. They're a bunch of weak weak soldiers. They don't know, the difference between holding up a rifle and standing, face to face with the enemy. Colonel Johann Rawl went as far as saying that they that the Americans were a bunch of cowards. Well, Colonel Johann Rawl ate his was forced to eat his words, because once the attack went underway, Colonel Rawl was the first to die. And eventually Washington and his men captured nine hundred Hessian troops, or rather close to a thousand. It was the victory that saved the um, campaign for independence. It was the victory that restored morale. The bottom line is that Washington and his forces did something unconventional. Doing things unconventional had been something um, of a norm since the time, um, since leading up to the time when uh, independence was officially declared um, once and for all from England. If if we were not doing things unconventional, then I don't see how we would have made it to year six. So anyways, back to uh where we need to um, be focusing on is that um other various uh key uh components behind you behind the Utah Springs battle will definitely get addressed, but it's very fair to say that this engagement was full of everything eighteenth century Military fighting brought from firing volleys, bayonet charges, discipline, focus, and having pure luck, which throughout the Revolutionary War's duration often made the biggest difference between victory, defeat, and survival to ensure that an army lived on for another day of fighting as well as keeping its intended mission, or I should say objective, afloat when the going got tough. Well, I believe it's fair to say that the example I mentioned earlier about Trenton, New Jersey is a good example of what needs to go into a, into place when the going gets tough in terms of doing things unconventional. And it is fair to say that based upon... Um, what I have shared with you all from uh, previous podcasts, uh, most notably the one we did uh, a while back about uh, To the End of the World with uh, Nathaniel Green and Charles Cornwallis and the Race to the Dan River, that uh, when Nathaniel Green arrived, it was all about doing things unconventional. And speaking of Nathaniel Green, here we go with him. Although Nathaniel Greene didn't arrive south until early December 1780 when he became the, the, the next Southern Continental Army's uh, commander in chief, Patriot forces two months earlier, back on October the 7th of 1780, scored a huge battle victory at Kings Mountain. Kings Mountain is right along the South Carolina-North Carolina line, uh, not far from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Patriot forces have finally got, scored a huge battle victory, especially knowing just how bad things had had gone from the siege of Charleston early on in 1780 to the Waxhaw Massacre to the infamous debacle at Camden under Horatio Gates. Now the... Uh, now, um, now things are looking better. The reason why this victory at Kings Mountain was so big, or grand I should say, is because it prevented General Lord Charles Cornwallis from invading North Carolina and instead forcing him to retreat back south into South Carolina. Had Cornwallis and his forces won this battle at Kings Mountain, it was going to be an easy slam dunk north into North Carolina. and probably not too much of a stay in North Carolina to where the ultimate prize is Virginia, being not only the largest of the 13 colonies, but the grandest of them all in terms of her terrain. Now, from late 1780, prior to and after Nathaniel Green's arrival south Southern Continental Army forces gradually wore down British units through means of using irregular fighting tactics. Now, I know I've mentioned that before, but it probably will be mentioned uh, frequently in this uh, book topic uh, series. While the British under General Cornwallis marched north to Virginia, not long after Guilford Courthouse, General Greene went back south into South Carolina, where the mission focused upon taking back the Palmetto State's interior country. As the final months of 1781 were approaching, General Green's army had been well rested between July and August, where he knew his forces were up for one more fight, and Utah Springs just so happened to be the chosen site come September's beginning. Given General Cornwallis and his forces were stationed north in Virginia, the man in charge of British troops still stationed within South Carolina's military base, being Charleston, was, Colonel, was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, whose mission sought to halt General Greene's current advancement into the heart of interior country. Utah Springs would ultimately become the American Revolutionary War's last major open field battle. Along with being the last in which large-sized armies gathered in linear combat fighting positions, this battle would comprise of seasoned veterans, deserters, and prisoners on both sides whose armies were looking for one last victorious looking for one last victorious um, feet, or rather I should say stand. So in other words, this was um, a stand that would be what we would refer to as a make it or break it uh, situation. It's also fair to point out that military history is more than just moving troops from point A, or rather I should say from points A to B on a battlefield. Military history itself also encompasses geology and physical geography, which have been present throughout mankind's existence in times of war. Our study here will definitely make sure to learn how General Nathaniel Green and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart utilized these physical features to their advantages in preparing for what became the Southern Campaign's final battle. No matter what side a soldier fought along, Utah Springs yielded plenty of highs and lows to American and British troops, including their commanding officers. I believe that it's truly up to us as individuals, but more so as a greater society, in paying tribute towards all whom fought, survived, and died, because whomever emerged victorious not only controlled South Carolina's interior, but also held great sway over how and when opposing force could be entirely removed once and for all. Sometimes we already know whom, uh, whom emerged uh, victorious and defeated in pivotal battles during America's eight-year conflict against the mother country, being England, However, in this new upcoming podcast book topic study, it will be left to us for determining whether or not one side prevailed as the true victor, including coming upon anything missed which had potential in changing battles in changing the battle's outcome from tactical standpoints. For those whom fought and survived at Utah Springs, here is the greater story behind the American Revolution's Final Battle in the Southern Campaign, which commenced September 8, 1781. And our and the title to our uh, new book topic series discussion is the following. Utah Springs, the Final Battle of the American Revolution's Southern Campaign by Robert M. Dunkerley and Irene Boland. Who would have thought in a million years that there was another battle that that turned out to be the, the real um, final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign? Who would have thought in a million years that there would have been another battle that actually superseded Yorktown? We have to keep in mind, folks, that Yorktown did begin in September, and although a surrender at Yorktown did occur, but the surrender didn't occur until October the 19th of 1781. The siege at Yorktown lasted more than a day. It lasted weeks, but as for Utah Springs, it only lasted one day. But Utah Springs was the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign. I know all of you are going to look forward to this one and... When I'm on the air again next, uh we are going to um learn uh, about um we're gonna learn about the American uh commanders. Besides Nathaniel Green, we are going to learn about um the officers below him. We're also gonna learn um about um essential one oh one um terms like uh brigades, what consists of a brigade unit. We're gonna learn some stuff about regiments. I think it's important that we learn this because it's one thing to be um, a soldier, but at the same time, just because you're a soldier, it doesn't mean that you are a regular. In other words, you know, think of militiamen. Think of, um, you know, think of regular continental uh, troops. And At the same time, just because you're a continental troop, it doesn't mean that that is your exact title. You probably have other titles uh, depending on your... uh, Depending on the skills that you bring to the uh, forefront of uh, of the uh, conflict itself, and if there is time in the next podcast uh, in the next podcast segment, we will try to uh, learn some more about the British uh, officers besides Lieutenant uh, Colonel Alexander Stewart. So I hope all of you are going to look forward to this uh, new uh, podcast uh, topic series. It's going to be a bit different. But I welcome the challenge, and I think when it's all said and done with, we're going to come away um, learning even more than we ever did before. Because I bet all of you out there probably did not know about Utah Springs. And I will say this right now, that I was in that category as well until I read the book. So I feel that I owe it to all of you in letting you guys know, not just that there was another battle that was the final battle of the Southern Campaign, but to tell the story behind this battle, after all, it has been a forgotten battle, but at the same time, uh, there has been new light shed on the battle, th- not only based upon this book that was written, but um, but histo- other historians have um, have taken it have taken the opportunity to uh, capitalize in learning about this. And um, an organization called American Battlefield Trust, which I'm a a member of, they um, oversee to it that um, land gets preserved, and they have preserved a decent amount of um, land at Utah, or what we now know in today's time as Utahville, but they have preserved um, a fair amount of land that uh, commemorates and honors those whom whom, um, paid the ultimate sacrifice from from September 8th of 1781. Hard to believe and that in a short while that um, come next month it will mark 241 years. That doesn't seem like a long time, but it should also serve as a reminder to those whom survived, those whom died, those whom fought, who made the ultimate sacrifices to ensure that future generations lived in freedom, something that we should never take for granted. Well, thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again, and wherever you all may live uh, in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care, and God bless.